Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Kendra Salani, welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. How are you today? I am doing well, thank you. Good, good. Kendra is a friend of mine. Uh, she came into the pawn shop uh, some months ago and uh, just reached out to me, said, you know, hey, I was listening to the podcast. And since then, we've hung out with her and her husband, uh, our family with uh, her family. Um, kind of hung around you quite a few times. Uh, been fun to get to know you. But today I wanted to give you a chance to kind of tell your story. You've, you've told me your story and there's a lot of trauma here. And so I just want to give the listeners a heads up that we're going to be talking about sexual abuse and the church's handling of that as well as just the abuse in general. And um, want to make sure that listeners are aware that that's a sensitive subject. But I wondered, Kendra, if you would just kind of get us started, maybe tell us just a little bit about yourself and then we'll we'll jump into your story. Sure. So um, I am 42 years old. Um, I was, uh, let's see. Um, I'm glad that you're going to be able to edit this actually. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> um, when uh, I, I was born in California, my parents were married when, um, uh, and had four kids. I'm the baby of the family. Um, my parents moved from California to Maryland and then moved to Colorado uh, when I was about three, and um, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old, and my mom married a man, and my, uh, after being only, um, only dating him, I think, for about three months, and my dad married another woman, um, and they actually were married to those people for about eight years, and then they divorced them, and then they ended up marrying each other again, so um, when I was 16, I had my my biological mother and biological father married to each other again. So um, I was the only one that had both my parents together again um, when I was 16. So um, the only one of my siblings. And then um, I grew up in, in Colorado, graduated from Arapahoe High School in Colorado, and uh, did pretty good in school. I went to uh, college and um, had some issues with uh, – um, ADD that I didn't really understand. Um, it was never really diagnosed, um, but uh, until I graduated with a bachelor's degree in nursing and then, um, through going to a, a physician and just taking a test, he was like, well, yeah, you definitely have ADD. And, uh, so I started taking medication for ADD. After that, I finished a master's degree in, in nursing leadership through Regis State, Regis University in Colorado also. Um, and then I moved here to St. George to be close to my, uh, my mom and dad who had moved here previously because my dad, um, 
my dad was diagnosed with stage four colorectal and prostate cancer from uh, Agent Orange exposure. He was a double amputee from Vietnam. And um, so we moved here to be close to them and so that I could be a part of taking care of him when he was not doing well and couldn't take care of himself any longer because we knew that it was not going to be long before he would need help. And uh, so I helped take care of him during that time. I also worked as a ICU nurse in the uh, in the hospital here in St. George. Um, and I also worked as an ER nurse after that. And now I am a nurse practitioner for um, heart failure patients. So that's where I'm at now. So interesting. All good stuff. So Let's kind of start off, I guess, um, start us off where you want to, where you want to tell us uh, the parts of your story, I guess, either leading up to or even starting with the kind of what led to the abuse uh, happening. So uh, as a kid, um, my parents were, my mom was a, a wallpaper hanger and my dad was, um, he worked for the USDA, but uh, because he was a double amputee from Vietnam. He uh, had he had PTSD. Um, didn't really talk about his time in Vietnam, and um, he was his coping mechanism for uh, for you know his his trauma was that he would go and play golf, and um, he would drink on the weekends and sometimes during the week. And my understanding as a child in the LDS Church was that he was an alcoholic. My understanding now as a nurse practitioner and as somebody who has taken care of many patients who have gone through alcohol withdrawal was that he was not an alcoholic, that he was a normal human in the American, in the country of the USA, <laughs> that he uh, he would drink um, a couple beers or have a couple drinks um, during the week and, and sometimes during the weekend. And he, um, he quit drinking cold turkey and never had uh, what's called delirium tremens, never had shakes. He never had to drink to be able to uh, function in the morning. And so I was, that was one of the, the issues that I had with um, when I was a child was that I was always told that my dad was, was an alcoholic, um, which made me believe that my dad was a bad guy. Um, and, and I kind of had, I was treated differently in the church. My, my mom, when she got divorced, um, she was treated differently. Um, and when she divorced my dad, um, my, my dad was, um, you know, I mean, technically my dad was a hero. He was a war hero, but he had a lot of, a lot of problems. Like I think all of us do. Um, but my mom was in this position where she was wanting to be married in the temple and wanting to have um, those blessings. And so this man came along that uh, promised all of those things. And um, he uh, was a master manipulator, um, but he was not shopping for a wife, really. He was shopping for a, a little girl. Um, and um, he dated my mom for about three months and um, was just this really fun-loving guy that uh, would play with us and tickle us, and, and he paid really close attention to me. Um, but he had to beg for a temple recommend the night before he married my mom. And then he took my mom to the temple, and my mom was blinded by his um, priesthood and the fact that he could take her to the temple. Can I, can I ask you, were you, are you aware now or then 
him having to beg for a recommend, do we know what his issues were kind of leading up to that at that point? Um, I found out since then, um, actually after, after he married my mom, my brother and I were at a church dance um, when we were, you know, I guess we were 14 because I think that's when we were allowed to go to church dances. So my brother and I were at a church dance and um, these two um, kids came up to us at a church dance and um, apparently they were the children of the woman that he was married to before um, before my mom. And I'm not 100% sure if I'm telling this story right, but what I what I remember of um, being told this this story or my brother telling me is that um, the girl was 12 and uh, the wife that he was married to before my mom, um, she was only married to him for six months and her daughter absolutely hated him and she divorced him. But I don't, I still don't know why I can guess. Yeah, yeah we can make assumptions. Yeah, I totally get it. Uh, where do we go from there? Um, so I, I don't have like specific memory, um, of the time that they were married. I have, I have stories that have been told to me and have kind of relied on kind of my own physical memory and also reading through, I actually, I actually kept a really good journal as a kid, um, and have had some memories come back since I had to write a police report for myself, uh, and things have come back um, to memory when I was asked to write a letter um, to the to the church, to the uh, first presidency of the church, when uh, when my stepdad was asking for his blessings to be restored. So I guess before we go there, um, uh, my mom was married to him until I was about um, 14, um, mar- uh, divorced him in 1993. I think I don't have all my dates right in front of me. Um, I had to write a, a deposition for his religious court, his excommunication. And apparently my, my letter, my, my signed um, statement, which I call a deposition, which was notarized, was used to excommunicate him. So that was the main thing that, uh, that kind of sealed his deal, his excommunication. And uh, that was in October of 1993. So after he was excommunicated, I really didn't hear anything else about him. I went through a lot of counseling. Um, I got into some trouble in high school. Um, I uh, had I had sex with other people with with men. I was raped a couple of times after um, after he left my house because one of the uh, common one of the common things that happen with people who are um, who are victims of sexual assault is that they, and I'm saying, you know, kind of third person, but we, that we put ourselves in, in situations of um, risk. And when we do that, um, you know, it's not that we, we really want to be harmed. It's that when we're not believed, um, when things are confusing, um, when we are, um, you know, when we're children, we're nine, nine years old. And between, so for me, between the time I was nine to the time I was 13, I was told or had alluded to me that my dad, my, my biological dad was a, was a bad person because he was, he drank alcohol and 
and he wasn't home a lot. But then this man who comes into my house is a good person because he has the priesthood and he goes to church. But he's doing things to me that don't make sense and that don't make me feel good. And but technically probably did make me feel good. (laughs) So it's so confusing because, uh, you know, he was he was so nice in the very beginning and tickled me. And to this day, I absolutely hate being tickled. It's something that makes me want to throw up. And, you know, that's unfortunate because, you know, people have fun with each other and come up behind each other and tickle each other. And that's one of the things that sets me off that is just not okay with me. So certain things that kind of went went along with my abuse that didn't make sense to me until I started writing a statement for the police in October of 2018. And this was after the second letter from the first presidency was requested. So so let's talk for a moment just to kind of connect a few dots. So, okay, please. Um, so nine years old, this guy comes into your family, mm-hmm. comes into your space. And mm-hmm. from the age of nine to 13, this, as you point out, this guy, I mean, I, I've, I've read your story. I've talked to you about your story. This guy is a master manipulator. Right. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily want to talk about the abuse itself, but I, I do want to talk about, because I think it's helpful to the audience as they're wanting to protect their children or be aware of kind of the signs of these things going on, um, maybe speak for a moment about the mechanisms this guy used to build trust, um, the mechanisms this guy, and again, only if you're comfortable, mechanisms that uh, would be the signs that people should look out for in terms of recognizing that this kind of thing is happening? Um, So one of the things that I would say um, is to not always look at the person that you think is the perpetrator, but to look at the child. So looking back at my my journals and looking at things that changed in me. So I remembered that I used to have a lot of energy. So up until I was nine years old, I, I remember a, a, I remembered a lot of people telling me that I was annoying, um, that I had a lot of energy. I was silly. I was funny. I was, you know, I was this, I was the youngest child. Um, and I may have still been annoying um, after that, but probably in a different way. Um, and after he came into our house and was allowed to be around me all the time, I noticed a change in my journals. I started talking about how I was sick all the time. My back hurt. I had a stomach ache. I kept getting kidney infections. I kept getting bladder infections. My mom was taking me to see a urologist. It was, you know, things changed. I actually started, um, and this is personal, I mean, it's very personal, but I started masturbating. I was a little girl and had never done that before, but my mom would catch me doing that. And then she would get mad at me for doing that because I was laying on the floor on the, on my stomach. But that was what you would do as a, as a little girl who had had that done, had something done to you. So before making a, an accusation or before getting angry at your child for doing something that they've been taught by an adult, you need to make sure that you find out where they learned that. Don't get mad at the child. So look at the changes in the kid and don't ever, don't ever get mad at the, at the child for the changes that are happening in them. Listen to them. 
Yeah, it's interesting in terms of what you're pointing out, which is any kind of behavioral change changes in our kids that seem drastic, seem like there's something, something's moved and it moved quickly mm-hmm. to, to recognize that. And as you point out, I mean, certain behaviors we see as taboo, we see them as on some level embarrassing. And so we're just trying to like nip it in the bud and, and put an end to it. But the reality is like, like you're pointing out, why is that happening? What's going on behind the scenes that's all of a sudden caused this shift? So nine to 13, the abuse is happening and when you're 13 years old, this man is excommunicated from the church for for these actions, right? For causing this trauma and for this abuse. Yeah, there were other things that, uh, so my mom wrote her letter, um, and there were things that she had mentioned on her letter as well, things that, um, that he had done that uh, were, you know, financial um, things that she had included in her letter. Um, and there were things that had happened after me that were included um, by people that he, there was somebody he had married after my mom uh, and a woman that apparently he had gotten pregnant after he left my mom. And there was a rumor that he had pushed her down the stairs and she had, he had a miscarriage and then he paid for a DNC. Um, so these are this is all hearsay. I mean, it's not stuff that I have any proof of, but these are things that I heard afterwards. I mean, actually, and going back to the behavior changes, I was scared to death to be at home with him alone. That's another thing to watch for. I I got into my mom my mom's car when she was leaving with everybody else, and I don't know why she didn't take me with her, but I was hiding in the back of her car because I didn't want to be left alone with him. I tried to sleep in my sister's bed every single night so I wouldn't be in my bed, and she didn't want me sleeping in her bed because the other thing that changed in me is that I would wet the bed. So I wet the bed until I was 13. Guess when he left? Yeah, yeah, same time. Right around the same time. So after he left, I stopped wetting the bed. You're pointing out, which is, okay, again, these behavioral changes, but you're also speaking to this fact that he's he's hurting other people. He's causing damage in other places. It's not just the sexual abuse with you. It's, it's traumatizing others in other ways, uh, including your mom and then people you didn't even know. You get to this point here where essentially you and others are coming forward and you're pointing out this abuse. And so now... The church is stepping in, and you and I have talked about this over dinner. There's this idea in the church that the leaders of the church, local leaders as well as anywhere higher up, that they have this mantle, they have this authority. And there seems to be a recognition by local leaders generally, and some of them have some common sense and they they realize like, oh, this doesn't really work this way. But there's a lot of local leaders who feel like, oh, I'm the voice of God. I represent Heavenly Father. And so as somebody comes forward with some kind of trauma they've received, specifically when that trauma is illegal and, and deeply harmful and all these, these serious repercussions and ramifications of what's going on, this idea that you can handle everything in-house. If I'm, and I served as a bishop. I, I felt like if something serious came across, like, oh, in some way, I trump the police. I trump uh, law enforcement. I trump any outside the church authorities, and we can just fix things in-house. And I feel like a lot of leaders feel that. The church doesn't do a very good job of training, and I'm not even sure the church wants things to go differently, um, simply because they don't seem to set those things as priorities in terms of training leadership and making it clear what the what these rules and boundaries are to this. When this happens at 13 years old and this man's excommunicated, talk for a moment about what, what involvement is there with law enforcement? Is everything covered in-house and in reality, how much that misses the mark. So when I was 13, that was actually the the 
kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me, I guess. Um, it was the, it's actually the last thing that I remember. And really the only thing that actually was the thing that I remembered until, until I started writing, um, until I started writing about this whole thing as an adult. So when I was 13, I was downstairs in our basement. Um, and, uh, we had a, we lived in a townhouse, um, because among other things, my stepdad was kind of a deadbeat. He had five kids of his own. Um, he never paid child support. So he, that was a way, one of the ways that he was, um, good at, at manipulating was that he made sure my mom was very busy. Uh, she was supporting our family and he had a job here and had a job there, but he always had access to me. So he came downstairs and I was in my pajamas and I was watching cartoons or something. I was watching TV. It was probably a Saturday morning. And uh, we had these ugly brown and orange plaid upholstered couches that had the like a wood frame. And I was watching TV and he came downstairs and sat uncomfortably close to me, wrapped his arms around me. And without wasting any time, he reached up my shirt and with his other hand, he grabbed my my breast and made a comment about, oh, my, you're getting boobs. And I don't exactly remember my response, except that I was paralyzed and I couldn't move because my arm because his other arm was around my shoulder. Um, I remember feeling really angry. I told my mom she didn't believe me. Um, I have a journal entry actually on that day uh, that that happened. And eventually she believed me, but she didn't believe me at first. And I was I wrote in my journal entry how angry that I was. But that was kind of the unraveling of their marriage was because I was actually able to come out and tell my mom. The thing that to go back on was that my mom knew that there was something off within six months of them being married because she would find that he was gone from their room in the middle of the night and then find that he was downstairs getting a drink of water. But she also came home at one time in the middle of the day and he was in my room with me with the door closed. So she knew there was something going on, but she was in complete denial that there was, that there could possibly be something something going on, that this could possibly be happening. So the other thing that that people should be really aware of is you should really listen to your gut. So it was actually in 1992 when I was 15 that, or actually, I guess 1993, October of 1993, that that letter was written and the excommunication took place. And uh, my letter, I've been told, my letter was the the frosting on the cake. And I'm the reason that he was excommunicated which is the reason that the church reached out to me when he wanted to be rebaptized. So I was the only thing standing in the way of him being rebaptized. I asked his bishop because I was I was contacted by my bishop. I was active in the church at that time. Um, I was contacted by my bishop to um, he was really nervous, actually, my bishop um, to talk to me about this because it was a sensitive subject. Um, and I didn't have a problem at that time. I wasn't feeling vulnerable. I wasn't, uh, I had gone through so much counseling about my stepdad, about what he had done, that I had forgiven and I had moved on and things were okay. And I, you know, I made sense of what happened for me and used it to be a better nurse and to be a better nurse practitioner and to be a better, uh, to be better at empathizing with people 
and to I used it to make sure I was being fully aware of what my kids were going through and make sure I didn't miss anything that could possibly happen to my own kids um, to, you know, to be completely aware of what was happening. So I didn't I didn't feel like I was in a vulnerable position when I met with my bishop. So when I saw him and he said to me, there's somebody that wants to be rebaptized and they need a letter from you. And I said his name and he he my bishop looked at me like, OK, um, he I mean, he actually was kind of surprised that I was just very matter of fact about it. And I said, yeah, he was my stepdad and he molested me as a little girl from the time I was nine till I was 13. And I was very matter of fact about it because it wasn't a problem for me at that time. And so the only problem in my getting in my way at that time was that my dad was on hospice and I was starting my doctoral program uh, for my nurse practitioner degree. Right. So you've got a lot of things kind of going on, mm-hmm. um, big things, important things, uh, okay. dealing with your dad's health and uh, mm-hmm. your own education and schooling. So I want to I separate here for the audience. I want them to understand kind of the two things that are happening. There's two different events. So there's, there's the abuse and there's the original excommunication when you're younger. And then there's this later point in your life where the church is reaching out to you and asking for your contribution according to the handbook and according to the rules that the church has set in order for this man to get rebaptized and to enter back into full fellowship in the church. So we go back to the primary event in the beginning, and I want to, I want to again, just kind of reiterate the question. I don't know that we covered it, which is at the, at the excommunication, is at any point in that time frame is the law enforcement, is law enforcement involved or is the church just handling this in house? No, they just handle it in house. Right. So this man gets excommunicated after sexually abusing you, right. after likely sexually abusing other people and traumatizing and abusing other people in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's this excommunication happens. No law enforcement's involved. The church sees itself as able to handle this without any need to reach out to police or anybody else. I mean, that to me seems insane. And yet we as, as, uh, former Mormons or believing Mormons, even uh, for anybody who's still in the church or those who are out who are aware of this, like it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to any of us that there's this cultural way of handling things that doesn't involve police, even when illegal crimes happen. Was there any, was there any effort at the, at the earlier experience when the abuse is happening, this communication occurs, is there any effort on anybody's part to say like, maybe we should call the cops here? So with my deposition or my statement to them, I actually, my last paragraph of that, I said, I will never feel safe in my own home again after letting these facts out in the open because I have always been afraid of blank. Please help my childhood fears to subside and convict blank of what he has done to me so that he doesn't do this to anyone else. I don't want anyone else to have to experience this kind of unpleasant experience, especially since blank can take advantage of people who don't know any better and thinks that since he is older and bigger than them, that they don't know how or if they should have the right to defend themselves. I said in my letter that I wanted him to be convicted. This letter, this letter was sent to the high council that excommunicated him. So he was excommunicated in Utah. Uh, My abuse happened in Colorado. So I reported my abuse to a bishop in Colorado. So that bishop in Colorado actually broke the law because the Colorado statute at that time doesn't have a clergy exemption. 
Um, and the high council broke the law because this was an admission from uh, or this was a, a this was from me as the child telling them that I had been abused. So if he had confessed his sin to the high council or to the bishop and that was a clergy exemption, that's one thing. But this letter shows that I, as the victim, was telling them about my abuse. Right, right. If he's going to a leader and saying, look, I really messed up, here's what I did, then maybe, maybe if there's the exemption, we, we make space for the the bishop to say, like, I, I have to keep these confidences. I don't want to, but I have to. And yet, like you say, by you going to them with this letter, it's it's not the abuser, it's the victim. And at that point, it feels like any time that happens, the law enforcement should be being called. And even recently, the church has... Uh, updated its policies. It's created some new training that's about to occur. Uh, in fact, I think it is occurring and people are already taking the training. And still it says like, look, average lay members call the police immediately. Local leadership, bishops, stake presidents, your job is to call this hotline, which reaches out to the church's legal team. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems deeply unfortunate that that this religious system seems to still in 2019 and certainly did in the day of that experience with you want to keep everything in house and not want to reach out to law enforcement and and again this is only adding mountains and mountains of more trauma that that we're not handling you said something when we were out to dinner the one day you said something which i thought i i think is important to maybe mention here but you talked about a different age group and what that age group wants and at some point how you wanted uh, justice for this thing, but maybe that's not the way a kid sees it. Sometimes, do you mind? Do you remember that? And do you mind talking about that for a moment? So when I was a when I was a kid, you know, when when we're kids, we don't know what is what is really the best thing for us as as far as having this this abuse reported. As a fifteen year old, um, writing this letter to the the high council that was excommunicating him, I wanted him to be turned into the police. I was actually talked out of. Um, him being turned into the police, from what I remember, my mom remembers, um, that they had said to me at one time, uh, you don't want to be put through that, right? You don't want to be put through a trial. You don't, you know, in the whole like law and order scene, they were trying to make it so that it was not something that I would want to do. And I vaguely remember them saying something about not turning him in or not going through with their police report. But I don't remember that being really a choice for me. I remember it being something that somebody else decided for me in an order in, in an effort to protect me. And I'm doing that protect in in my little air quotes. Right. There. Air quotes. Right. Um, because I don't believe that that was really, really what the intention was, was to protect me. Uh, so as a child, you know, you don't know. Your your intention as a child is to not nobody should know about this. This is embarrassing. I don't want anybody to know. As a twenty year old, I had I had three kids by the time I was twenty two. So my whole focus was on taking care of my kids and and not letting anything else get in the way of that and really protecting them from anybody else doing to them what happened to me. And then in my thirties, I'm still like trying to take care of everybody else and take care of my kids and, and then taking care of my family, my dad, my, my mom, really looking after everybody else and still kind of having some reservation about other people knowing about what's happened to me. Uh, but then in my 40s, now I'm at a point where I'm seeing 
I'm seeing the world for what it is. And I don't really care what other people know about what happened to me, as long as it's something that can help to change what's happening in the world. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're pointing out an important thing, which is as little kids, we have no clue what's really going on. As an older kid, you you wanted uh, a sense of justice and you wanted justice to be done. And somebody else, you ask for something to happen and somebody else tells you, you don't really want that to happen and essentially cut you off from this this option of, of getting law enforcement involved. And again, it's always somebody else saying, I know best. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, always, I'm always bothered in various religious systems, but it certainly happens in Mormonism, the need to override somebody's story. Somebody says like, here's my story. Here's, here's my narrative. And somebody else comes along and goes, I know your narrative better. Here's what you, here's what you should do. Um, that, that bothers the heck out of me. And we see it so often in, in various religious systems, but we see it really strongly in high demand fundamentalist religions, Mormonism being one of those. So we, we have this early experience He's excommunicated. Law enforcement isn't involved. You said at some point here, you're you're an older adult. It, you said 2018. Is that kind of the first time people are reaching back out to get you back involved in, in this man's life to get him back into the church? No, it was 2015. Or actually, 2014 was when my dad passed away. It was um, September, October of 2014 that I first, uh, I first got called into the bishop's office and asked for a letter. Um, because I couldn't write that letter right away, I was, uh, I was asked, uh, or I was given a phone number to, uh, my stepdad's, uh, state president. And I called him, I called him really pretty quickly. And I explained to him my situation. I told him that I was not going to be able to write the letter right away, but I wanted to let him know what kind of man he was dealing with and uh, to let him know what my experience was um, when I was a child, let him know what happened to me, uh, and to help him to understand that I didn't support him being rebaptized, and that part of the, the repentance process that we're taught in the church is that we, first, we admit that we've done something wrong, we make restitution, we don't do, we don't do it again, you know, none of those things happened. So if, if he never admitted he did something wrong, he never said he was sorry to me, and he's never made restitution, and with any pedophile who has not been caught, the likelihood of him reoffending is very high. I don't even know. I don't know what the, what the likelihood is. I don't know. I think I wrote it down in one of my, one of my notes, but the percentage of people who reoffend if they are not convicted is high. If convicted, there's a 25% probability of reoffending. But not somebody who's not caught, how about 100%? They can get away with it over and over again. So if they keep getting away with it, why why are they going to stop? And if the church keeps supporting them and getting away with it and giving them more victims because they're never taken away from children, why are they going to stop? Right, right. Um, so... I guess I want to follow up by saying, yeah, so you ha- you have the young experience. He's excommunicated. Now you've got, it's 2014. Um, your bishop's reaching out to you. You're the victim. He's the abuser. And and yet there's this setup like, hey, we need a letter from you. And this is important. Talk to us. Like, what happens? Do they, do they essentially move forward without that letter? Or do they wait on you? Or what happens from there? Well, my understanding was that they were waiting they were waiting on me. Um, 
I didn't get around to writing the letter until I think it was November of 2015, so it was almost a year. But I did call the state president again to let him know where I was at because I was drowning in homework with my doctoral degree, my doctoral program. And, um, you know, my dad had passed away by then, uh, but I was also working as a nursing professor. I was I was busy. So. I was uh, I was just giving them an update. He never called me back. I did leave a message. And then I found out um, I found out in when I got actually when I got another request, <laughs> um, I got another request in uh, I think it was October of uh, 2018 uh, for another letter. It was actually a month or so after my new bishop and in the ward that we live in. He came over and, and wanted to see if we wanted a calling. And uh, my husband is, is interested in scouting, and so they wanted us to be the bear leaders. And so we were willing to do that because it didn't mean us going to church. Um, I had stopped going to church because I was having panic attacks with the idea of just seeing a church building. Just walking past one was, was triggering panic, triggering anxiety for me, um, which all of it started building after um, after the first letter was requested, and then after some things that were happening at work as well that were parallel to my abuse. But um, that's, an, that's a whole other story. The second letter that was requested, that's when I found out he had been rebaptized because the second letter that was requested in November of 2018, they were asking for his blessings to be restored. So he had been baptized. So you wrote the letter in 2015. That they, well, yeah, they oh, asked you originally in 2014, yeah, but you waited a year later. So you write the letter... And you essentially say, are you in that letter? Are you saying like, hey, I forgive yeah. him. Let's move yeah. on. It doesn't sound like yeah. it. It sounds like you're saying like, no, this isn't resolved. Right. And I gave it to my it's, bishop and my bishop gave it to my state president. And my state president apparently never sent it. At least that's what he said, because he's like, I didn't know what to do with your letter. And I'm like, um, my letter is folded and put in an envelope with a return address on it. And I think I might have even put a stamp on it. I just didn't even have, I didn't have the address to send it to. So what did you think I wanted you to do with it? <laughs> Is that, yeah, it that was seems, ridiculous. That seems odd. That's, it seems, yeah, it seems so odd. Like his job is to see that this letter gets somewhere. It's part of the church administration that he's responsible to do um, and not to send it on. And then at the same time, as you're pointing out, he doesn't send it on. They don't get the letter. And rather than the church reaching out to you to say, hey, we haven't gotten this yet. Um, from the ward that this guy lives in or the stake this guy lives in, they just went ahead and proceeded without you. Well, I, I kind of have a doubt in my mind that he didn't send the letter because I've been lied to by by a member of the 70 now. Um, so I don't I don't doubt that my state president lied to me. I think he probably did send it. But never got and maybe he got a response from from the first presidency that he that they were proceeding with his baptism. But he didn't want to tell me, I, you know, I don't I don't doubt anything at this point because of the way I've been treated um, by the by the the leadership of the church. Um, my my ward here, I don't have a problem with, you know, there there's nobody here that's mean to me or, you know, is taking any you know, retaliation against me, but the the main leadership of the church is is not handling this correctly. Um, they're re-victimizing re um, me, and I understand that I'm not the only person. So 
I am not going to just sit by and allow them to do this. I'm not going to let them sit by and allow them to do this to me or anybody else without making it known that this is what's happening to me. So 2015, you write the letter. The local leadership for you claims that they didn't send the letter on. It, it, It seems like maybe there's some level of skepticism about whether that happened or not. They rebaptize him anyway, in spite of your letter, whether they got it or whether they didn't. Either way, either way, there should have been some, ah, man, it's just, it's a hard thing because the church tells itself that even in the end, when the victim says this isn't resolved, the leader gets to go, well, I felt the Holy Ghost that it was. And so we went ahead and moved forward. There's such an unhealthiness when it comes to sex abuse in the church. That, that Mormon leadership gets to say like, oh, I have the authority, I felt the Holy Spirit, and so I handled it the way God wanted me to, and none of the other protocols or common sense uh, actions that should be taken essentially don't matter. So this guy gets rebaptized. They reach back out to you in 2018 because now he wants to have other things occur in terms of being on the gospel path inside the church. And, and kind of how does that unfold there from that point? So before I move on with that, I taught a lesson in Relief Society one time about the Holy Ghost and dopamine and how, um, you know, even now, like I, I don't go to church anymore. Uh, I believe that uh, I can still have that uh, dopamine release when I am doing something that I believe is good and correct and makes me feel good. And it's no different than what I believed was the Holy Ghost telling me or giving me a confirmation of something good before. So if if that's, you know, taking that idea um, and believing that um, a stake president or a bishop is saying that it's okay for my stepdad to be rebaptized um, and believing also that pedophiles and um, people who um, get away with sexual assault in the church and out of the church are master manipulators and can um, be completely charismatic, you know, get anybody to believe them about anything that they say, which is exactly who my stepdad was. I'm sure that he could lie through his teeth and make things seem like he was the most worthy man on earth and that he He could quote scripture and he could speak the Mormons speak, you know, with the nice little soft, you know, general conference voice all he wants. And I'm sure that that would make the state president believe that he was a good man. And I'm sure he would feel the spirit just like anybody else. But that doesn't make him a good man. And it still doesn't make him a good man if he does the 30 minutes of training. It just makes him a pedophile with a certificate of training which makes it a whole bunch of people in denial that this man will not try to find a way to be alone with their children. And it's not, it's not just him. It's every, every man that is, that is given a get out of jail free card by the bishops, the state presidents that don't turn them into the police. And they have, they have this training. There's too deep leadership. Well, you know, bullshit. Too deep leadership protects the people who don't want to be alone with children because they want to be able to say, I don't want to be alone with children because I don't want to be accused of anything that I am not guilty of. The people who are pedophiles are going to find a way to be alone with children, regardless if you, if you tell them that they're going to be protected by this 2D leadership. Yeah, you're you're pointing to that. You mentioned this idea of of the chemicals in our body that give us this 
what they call elevated emotion. Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt, I'm not sure which way he pronounces it, but he's kind of the frontier in this space. He's he's discussed and written books, written articles, peer-reviewed uh, research on what's called elevation emotion, which is what you're pointing to, which is this idea like, oh, I have this wondrous feeling in my body. Something good is happening. And we generally feel it when we see someone serving someone or when somebody speaks of high ideals or when a person in authority says something that sounds wise. And so, and, and he's shown that that feeling can be manipulated, which is what you're pointing at, when we as a system make a warm, fuzzy feeling the ultimate discerner of what's true and what isn't over data and facts and experience, uh, we suddenly set up a space where somebody can, with certainty within their mind, be sure that they're doing the right thing when in reality they're screwing everything up. Um, Or what you're pointing to as well, which is that this person as a manipulator knows what he can say or do in order to enact elevation emotion in another and that other trust that elevation emotion as, um, as as knowledge that the person they're talking to is on the right path, when in reality, that person has simply manipulated those feelings in order to cause more trauma and abuse. It It's such a, as an outsider looking in now, as, a, as someone who's deconstructed Mormonism and I'm away from it, you look back and you're like, wow, this is the, the most unsafe space in the world when we tell people that fuzzy, warm feelings trump uh, what's being said or what, what the past tells us about somebody else. Um, your thoughts? And it trumps logic. It trumps the law. It trumps obedience to the law. That's what they're saying. And that's what the, that's what the past teaches us, is that it trumps obedience to the law, the laws of the land. The law of the land tells us that we need to turn them into the police. Yeah, right, right. The, right. We, we live in a world of experts and trained people, and they're pointing us to take care of this with with the law, the, with law enforcement and the secular authorities. And yet, this system says, "Slow down." There, we have we have a better way to do this, and it actually just screws things up even more. So, in 2018, they reach back out to you, and and in reaching back out to you, they show their cards, which is, "Hey, we've already moved forward." In spite of your letter, either again not getting it or getting it and it recommending that we seek out justice on the behalf of victims, and this man's rebaptized, and so now he's looking for other other ordinances, other things to happen, and they reach back out to you again in 2018. Um, talk about like what you felt when that happened. I mean, that had to have that had to have hurt. Yeah, it was a betrayal. Yeah, and so I want you to talk for a moment about that, and then I want you also just to fill us in, kind of what. What happens at that point on your on your end as well as on the church's end? So um, I think uh, at that time um, I was I don't know I was kind of beside myself. I was in the middle of um, some some issues at work that were causing some significant uh, triggering of my PTSD, and this was also a trigger for PTSD. And I had not had um, a trigger for PTSD for a long time. So, uh, in, in getting this, uh, this notice, um, from the church or from my Bishop telling me that, um, that they wanted another or that they wanted a letter. Um, I don't know that they even said they wanted another letter because, uh, I called the Bishop of my former stepfather. Um, and he, um, 
talked to me for about an hour. He was he was nice to me. I mean, he wasn't uh, rude to me or anything, but I just told him exactly what I thought, which I was um, very you know straightforward with him. Um, told him that I was very upset that he had been rebaptized and did they not understand what this man was um, doing and what he had had done and um, and I asked if his records had been flagged and um, apparently his records before he was rebaptized had been flagged but I don't know if that means that he continues to have his records flagged meaning that he can't work with children um, but um, I don't know if that actually means anything uh, so when they contacted me, um, it kind of threw me. I, I was uh, that's when I really started having panic attacks was after that request. Um, and I called um, I called our local sheriff um, to find out what I needed to do to file a police report for myself. My mom called her state president because he was a lawyer and he actually told her that she had broken the law by not turning him into the police because she was an adult and, and she had the um, responsibility to protect me. Um, and so she was, that was stressful for her because then she felt like it was her fault. Um, and I don't, uh, I mean, I, I don't really blame my mom. I think she was just as much of a victim as I was. I think that he manipulated her as well. Um, but uh, um, after I made a couple of phone calls, um, I was directed to um, file a police report in Colorado, which is where the, the abuse happened. And so I did that. And that's when I had to write the written statement that I sent to you, which in writing that written statement, um, it actually put a lot of puzzle pieces together for me um, that uh, um, some of them were really painful and some of them were kind of aha moments of why I behaved in certain ways and why I did certain things that I did. But one thing that really stood out to me was that um, after my stepdad left, when I was about 15, um, I became sexually active when I was 15. Um, but um, by the time I was 18, I was being um, threatened with disfellowship from the church and actually was disfellowship from the church because of um, my sexual activity. And um, I thought that was kind of a slap in the face, um, considering what I had been through as a child and that they had not taken that into consideration. Um, so not only was I um, denied justice by them refusing to turn him into the police, but then I was punished by the church for my own behaviors that I don't really believe at that time I had any control over. Um, and uh, so that was that was pretty painful um, to realize that. Yeah, it seems like one of those things where we we look at an outward behavior. And I think we do it as humans generally. I think it's escalated a little bit within a religious system. But this idea that as humans we have these behaviors, and we're always like God's God is always judging us or uh, condoning or condemning us for our behaviors. Either we did a good behavior and we get a check mark or we did a bad behavior and now we need to repent. And it, it seems to eliminate the healthy way of handling these things, which is to look at the behavior, going back to what you said earlier, is to look at the behavior and examine like, why did that behavior happen? And maybe we ought to take some more time to understand the differences in one human's behavior versus another might be their, their life experience might be the things that have happened to them, and there might be healthier ways to to resolve these kinds of things, uh, rather than just looking at a behavior and saying like that's sin, 
So now repentance has to occur. And here you are being disfellowshipped when your behaviors almost certainly are an outflow of the abuse you've received. Right, exactly. Then in writing that uh, that statement to the police, those are things that I detailed in that statement, um, really, because I was detailing the things that not only were related to the abuse, but also the things that were related to um, the effects of the abuse afterwards. Um, and, um, you know, how, how I'm dealing with it now, what's happening now. Um, so I wrote that statement, but I also um, wrote the letter to the church. And when I did, um, I had I had called his bishop. I wrote the uh, letter to the church, but I just revised the one that I had written back in 2015. And I put um, I put new dates on it. I put that it had been updated and um, kept the old date on there and then just um, made it so that it was uh, a little bit more in depth. I put uh, people's names in there, the state president that I talked to, the bishop that I talked to, um, uh, you know, let them know the effect on me now and, and in the past. And I also um, included with that my written statement for my case in, in Colorado. Um, and I also included with that my, uh, my signed and notarized letter to the high council for when he was excommunicated. And I believe that by doing that, um, by sending this letter, and I actually gave um, my letter to my state president again, and I emailed it to him because that's how he requested it. So I kind of thought that was weird because I didn't really want him to read it. But because he got it that way, he I'm sure he read it. Um, and I didn't trust him really because he I'm pretty sure he either didn't send it before or he lied to me about sending it and um, and then you know, he didn't, he's not going to tell me if he gets a response. So um, I ended up uh, after about a month or two of not getting a response, uh, about a month, probably about of not getting a response. I ended up mailing it certified with a signature. And I got that, that um, notice back with the signature. Uh, and then after that was when I started calling the first presidency, the office of the first presidency to see what was happening with my letter. Yeah. So so at the church drops the ball on multiple occasions in order to serve the best interest of the victim. And again, for some reason, it seems like this set, the system is set up to almost ignore victims at times and have the easy feel good of helping this abuser back into full fellowship and to get the ordinances when in reality, the abuser has never changed their behavior or the abuser has never made restitution for what they've done. Oh, but he says he did. I'm sure he said he did. I'm sure he said all the right words. Right. But to go back to you and say, did this happen? Here's what this guy's saying he did to make this right. Uh, it seems like we never take the victims and go like, hey, I want to sit with the victim and I want to make sure that they're represented fairly. They're, they're the priority. And that doesn't seem to occur. And again, the, the church seems to drop the ball on multiple occasions in order to serve your interest and the other, the other victim's interest and to have... Your, the the um, the seeking of helping you guys put your lives back together and what would be the best resources and the best way to handle this in order to do that. That should have been the priority. And for whatever reason, the system, that doesn't ever seem to be the case. So they've essentially, they've, they they now are reaching out. They want you to, to help this guy make the next step. You reach out to the Colorado police. In Colorado, I assume from what you're saying, there's no statute of limitations there. No, there is. There's a statute of limitations. My, the statute of limitations was up. They allowed me to, to file a case um, because when they filed the case, they were um, 
they basically just, they gave me a case number. They took my written statement. They took my, my verbal statement. Um, and they, you know, they write it up, but it just gets filed away uh, because the statute of limitations is over. So they basically put it away. And then if his name ever comes up with any other statement nationwide from somebody else, then they'll connect the cases. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so here we are now it's 2019 and as a victim, in some ways, the church has just kind of re-victimized you. And, right. right? So, yeah. Um, so after I started calling the First Presidency, the Office of the First Presidency, I um, was given um, certain people's names. Uh, first, I was told that my um, the first time that I called, uh, the person that I talked to um, gave me information that they said that my letter was in my stepfather's file on President Nelson's desk. So I was like, wow, well, that's interesting. And um, I don't know if they were telling me the truth or not, but, um, you know, I mean, this is the Mormon church. Everybody's supposed to tell the truth, right? So um, the next time that I called, I was transferred around to multiple people and um, told each one of them a snippet of my story. So I'm having to like retell my story to multiple people. And, um, you know, we can call that, uh, you know, a type of therapy, I guess, since I'm, I'm re-exposing it myself to my, my story multiple times, or we can call it, you know, re-traumatizing me. Um, the next time that I called, I talked to somebody um, named Rose in Elder Christensen's office. And um, she told me she wasn't the right person to talk to. So they they transferred me to confidential records. And then I talked to somebody named Brooke Hales. And Brooke Hales listened to me for my whole story, basically. And then he said to me that he was not the right person to talk to. And then he told me that there was somebody in the social work department. He didn't say church social services. He said there was somebody in the social work department that was going to be contacting me. And I said, okay. He said, There's, this person has a lot of experience in dealing with these types of matters. And I said, oh, okay. So I waited for a few days for them to call me back, and they never called me back. So I ended up calling him back, and they transferred me to him. Um, well, the first time they didn't transfer me. The first time um, he was in a meeting, so they um, gave him a message. He called me back and left a message on my phone that uh, this person would call me back in the next couple of days. I called him back and and uh, when I didn't receive a phone call and let him know that they didn't call me. And he told me the name of the person um, and her name was Corey Webb. And she called me on a Wednesday, which was probably the better day to call me in the afternoon because I didn't have any more uh, patients to see. And he uh, she called me and introduced herself to me as a representative from the law offices of Curtin and McConkie. So Brooke Hales lied to me. When he told me that somebody from the social work department was going to call me to help me. Yeah, think, for the listener, I mean, think about that for a moment. You have a victim of sexual abuse who is writing the first presidency, asking... At their request. Yeah, at, at their, their request, request. At their request. And you're a victim. And what the church does is they don't want to get themselves in any further trouble. And so rather than reach out with any kind of compassion or empathy... They just pass your file along to the church's legal team, which whose main priority isn't there's no spiritual authority whatsoever in Curtin and McConkie. Their sole responsibility is secular protection of the church and its interest. 
And that's who they have reach out to you. So I took that as a threat. I took it as a threat. Because why why is a lawyer for the church reaching out to talk to me unless they feel threatened? And so if she is reaching out to me as a representative of the of the church's legal team, then she's reaching out to me as a threat to say back off. So I didn't give her time to tell me what she wanted because I just I let her finish what she was saying because she wanted to talk to me about my letter. She wanted to talk to me about the details of my letter. And I let her finish what she said. And then I said, I don't think I'm going to talk to you. I said, I'm going to be retaining my own legal counsel. Thank you. And I hung up on her. And then I and then I proceeded to have a panic attack at work. I had to grab all my shit (laughs) and I had to run and I had to somehow let everybody know without completely losing my mind. I had tears running down my face and hyperventilating and I am walking out of my office completely losing it. Yeah. And as I walked to my car, yeah. I'm not having a hard time with the fact that I was molested as a kid. I'm having a hard time with the fact that the church that I grew up in as a child is now revictimizing me. Instead of being supportive and helping and being somebody that actually is, you know, gives a shit about me as a person, they want to destroy me. Hmm. So I go to my car and I and I sit in my car because I can't drive. I can't see with my tears that are just pouring out of my eyes. And I sit in my car with my air conditioning on for probably a good 30 minutes before I can pull myself together and go home. Yeah, Um, I've sat I've sat and watched this happen not just in Mormonism. I've seen it happen with Jehovah's Witnesses. There's been a lot of stuff in the news lately with victims trying to get their story out in in that system working really hard to silence victims and to intimidate them. I mean I mean again to the audience like come up with a good reason if the, if if you're asked to write a letter to the first presidency and you're sharing the trauma and abuse that's happened you've asked for some level of justice and the church has Curtin and McConkie reach out to you. I mean, to the listener, come up with a healthy reason for that. And I don't think such exists. I don't think there's a healthy reason for why a, a completely secular entity with zero spiritual authority, whose primary responsibility is to protect the church and its interest, why that's the person reaching out to you, number one. Num- number two, I want you, I want you to h- help the listeners understand this. So let's go from where we're at now in 2019, and let's work backwards towards the original uh, experience with him being excommunicated. And tell us, you know, at this stage right here, what what would you, what are you hopeful? Like if the church could behave and act in healthy ways, which it seemingly can't, if it could, what are, what are you as a victim asking the church to do in the here and now in terms of maybe, maybe not re-traumatizing you in certain ways, maybe taking certain actions on their behalf. And, and let's work backwards through each of these experiences and say, what could the church have done differently at each one of these turns that maybe if anybody's listening that is on the inside of, of Mormonism and the inside of the church and has any ability to affect change, as, a, as one victim sharing insights that perhaps on some level, and I think certainly do, represent other victims' wishes, um, share with us like what this thing could do differently at every one of these twists and turns. I think the first thing that I would ask for is to stop the hypocrisy. I, I can't, uh, I can't deal with the hypocrisy. The, you know, saying one thing and doing another, having rules that only apply to some people and not to the greater organization. 
you know, we're the whole repentance process. You know, we're all expected to follow these rules. And if we don't or if we we make mistakes, then we're held to a higher standard than the greater organization of the churches. You know, they they have obviously made some pretty heinous mistakes with how they've handled child sexual assault. And, you know, working in healthcare, there are people that die and there are mistakes that are made. And if you keep covering up the mistake that happened that that caused the person's death, the person who was the loved one is more likely to sue when you do it, when you cover it up. There's research behind this. But when you when you say, I'm sorry, when you actually say the words, I'm sorry, and you try to find what the problem was that caused the mistake and you own it, they are less likely to sue because you're being transparent about the mistake. Even if the cause was a mistake in medicine, because you are being honest and transparent about what happened, the family member is less likely to sue because they can see your remorse and your honesty and the efforts at change. The more that the church decides that they are going to continue to cover this up, threaten victims, and make this a even a bigger deal to all of us who are trying to overcome our trauma, the bigger the fight is going to become because they are not willing to admit that they are continuing to make this a bigger mistake. They are continuing to victimize the victim and they are continuing to support the perpetrator. Like the church continues to hide and support and to allow these pedophiles and these people who are or have issues with sexual abuse back into the fold of the church and back into the presence of children. Yeah. So you you seem to be pointing to, so for instance, here in 2019, rather than Curtin and McConkie calling you up, somebody from the church who has some level of authority to say like, hey, we, we collectively missed the boat. We, we collectively messed up. We, we collectively missed the mark and we um, didn't handle this the way we should have when you asked us to a long time ago. And when you wrote letters, we should have saw your story and your trauma as the priority over getting this guy back, you know, into the next step of the gospel path. And for that, we're sorry. Like just to reach out to you and say, we messed up and we're sorry that it went the way it did and we've made some mistakes. Instead, the law team calls you up, which is the exact opposite of that. They're not going to say anything. That's the entire intent of that phone call is to not have anything said that on any level puts blame on the church. So we go back in time to 2018 when you were asked to write a letter again. We already acknowledged they made they made this. Uh, they went ahead and rebaptized him. So at that point, whatever whatever letter you're they're asking you to write again. Rather than put the victim as a secondary concern, because if we say like, okay, the victim wrote us a letter, the victim's been you know abused, and uh, they they don't feel like things have been made right, but you know again, I feel the Holy Ghost. We're going to move forward. We're going to allow this man to move into the next step in the gospel path. What we've done is we've essentially just diminished the victim even less, and so people people don't understand this. Like, okay. She's been victimized, but when when an entity takes asks for your input and your input is that this still isn't right, 
and and then goes ahead and moves ahead anyway, they they've deprioritized your story. They've taken your narrative and they've essentially said like it's not that important. Yeah, they invalidated me. They invalidated me. They invalidated invalidated my past. They invalidated my story. They invalidated invalidated my uh, trauma. They invalidated how I'm feeling now. They made it so that my panic attacks are, you know, you know, get over it. This happened a long time ago, you know. And when they put, when they allow this man to be rebaptized in 2015, when they allow this man to to take the next step in 2018, whatever that is, when when they allow each one of those steps, as a victim too, you have to be sitting back your entire life wondering, like, no one's ever really addressed this. How many more victims are there? By letting this man participate, uh, you've got to be concerned that not only have you been victimized, but who else is being victimized by this man right now, perceiving him as being worthy or righteous, when in reality, he, he is probably anything but. That's one of the, I think, one of the hardest things for me, and I think many other victims that I've talked to, and, and I'm going to call us survivors, since, you know, we're We've survived the abuse, but, um, you know, getting to be in, in my forties, I think one of the hardest things to look back on knowing that he did not face legal consequences and the likelihood of him, the probability that he continued uh, abusing is that I feel guilty. I feel guilty that he that that I didn't do more to stop him. So I feel guilty that he might've victimized other people after me and that there was maybe something that I could have done to stop it. I feel guilty. And if there's something that can be done now to, to stop him from victimizing other little girls, then that's my crusade right now. If he never faced consequences, real consequences, and never, a- never actually admitted what he did, the likelihood of him continuing is really, really high. And if I continue to just sit back and say, okay, well, I guess he's somebody else's problem, well, he's not, because the church brought him right back to the forefront of my memory and my problem. So now I feel guilty, and I feel like it's my responsibility to deal with my feeling guilty for not ensuring that he faced consequences. My statute of limitations is up for now until Colorado reopens their Sexual Assault Act like New York and California and Texas and Arizona, and I think Maine is has no statute of limitations. I'm waiting for all the states to open up and not have statute of limitations so that every single one of them can stop protecting the perpetrator. The Any statute of limitations is a gift to the perpetrator. It's a gift. And it's a life sentence. It's a life sentence for every survivor, every victim of sexual assault. Yeah, I was thinking about this when you said that, um, again, when we were eating dinner. And it's this idea that time... The, the more time that passes, that already works in the favor of the perpetrator. It already, it already diminishes the value that some evidence has. It already uh, diminishes the value that some witness testimony is going to have. It allows for uh, people who hold parts of that story or for pieces of evidence to die or vanish or disappear and so, as you point out, by having a statue of limitations, all we're doing is benefiting the abusers and the perpetrators. It's already, as time goes on, it's already harder for the victim to prove that something happened the way the victim uh, alleges that it occurred. And and 
So it's already in the perpetrator's favor. And by not having a statute of limitations, we're only helping the perpetrator further. It, it seems, and I saw this too in the news where they were going to open up this like one year period uh, where anybody who's been sexually abused can come forward and uh, start a case. Yeah, against an organization that covered it up. Yeah. So it's not really against the perpetrator. Right, right. And so, and I hope, I know like Utah currently has, I don't think they have a statute of limitations, but they essentially grandfathered in all the past perpetrators when they changed the law so that anybody who had a case, for instance, that the, the McKenna Denson and Joseph Bishop case, she, she essentially was able to proceed with the case because of the church coming up with new information that, that said that something wasn't handled right. But but it, had that not happened, she would have been out of luck and couldn't have filed something. And, and it seems to be that way in a lot of states, as you're pointing out. And so as our country, I think, moves towards making a, um, a more healthy space, which is to get rid of the statute of limitations and to create uh, room for victims to, to file uh, suits either against the abuser or against the entities that protected the abuser. Um, when they're ready. Right. When they're ready. Not when... Not when when the law says that they should be ready, but when they are ready. Right. Because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready when, maybe I was ready when I was 15, but they told me I wasn't ready or that it was not a good idea. But I'm ready now. And I have plenty of evidence. I have little journals. I have I have kept everything. I have kept everything. Yeah. And, and, and I hope at some point uh, that space opens up because I, I think every victim, you included, deserves to... Uh, have your story honored and to have have the facts laid out and to be able to seek out justice. So going back, go back to when, you know, nine to 13 years old, when the, when the church first became aware of that abuse, it seems like the healthy thing to do would be to respect your wishes and just common sense. Let's get law enforcement involved. Let's let this case be made and let's let's protect the victim as much as we can and let's seek their well-being and healthiness, and let's do everything involved. Let's get a let's get a therapist involved. Let's um, make as much space for this young person to to uh, have their story honored in whatever ways they they think that that's appropriate and healthy, and to have the victim be the the priority. We go to 2014, 2015. Honor the fact that you don't want to write your story right away. You don't want to write this letter right away. And and when you do, to take that letter seriously to the point where if a if someone's committed an offense of sexual abuse, and let's let's set the idea to trust the victim first. Let's just not have sexual abusers where where the evidence seems uh, significant enough that that person actually did this thing. Let's stop worrying about whether we get this person active again, get them faithful, allow them them to hold callings and to carry out responsibilities and to teach again in the church. Let's just say like, okay, they're they're an abuser allegedly, but but let's trust that testimony first and say like, hey, um, we're gonna try to protect others now at this point and not let this person serve in capacities that now put other people at risk. It just seems like that entire system is backwards. And, and again, we're just setting a space up for further victims to be created. And we're also having a system that re-traumatizes past victims every step along the way. Uh, anything else you want to point out in terms of what the church could be doing differently uh, in order to respect victims in their stories? I can't think of anything right offhand. Yeah, it just, it just, man, it just feels like so many parts of us are backwards. And 
I, I wish there was an outside committee that was objective and as unbiased as possible, that understood the law, understood what sexual abuse entails, understood what healthy responses were and what ethics are, and could essentially rewrite the entire code for how Mormonism and other unhealthy systems deal with this kind of stuff. Well, I, I can actually add to maybe what I think they should do. And one of those things that I think they should do is not have the hotline go to their internal um, legal counsel. It should go to it should go directly to the police or it should go to and, you know, some social services or some um, victim advocate site or, you know, an, an already established victim's advocate, child's victim's, victim's advocate, or sexual assault victim's advocate. There's so many organizations that are that are already set up to handle this kind of thing that don't have the best interests of protecting the reputation of an organization in mind. They actually have the best interests of protecting the victim. Right. Regardless of whether the church has committed some act that puts them uh, as being susceptible to legal recourse, any time the people contacted see that as the priority, protecting that and shielding the church, then unhealthy choices are going to be made that are going to just cause further damage to the existing victims and create new victims. And so as you're pointing out, there needs to be some outside entity that doesn't answer to the church, that doesn't have any sense of loyalty, no sense of shielding, no sense of protecting the church. Right. And, And the church should say, look, we're going to point you towards this other agency we can't fire them. We can't, um, we can't put pressure on them in any way. Their job is to help the victims figure out the healthiest recourse, regardless of whether that puts us at uh, some kind of legal uh, susceptibility, whether that uh, does any further damage to the abuser's reputation, the alleged abuser's reputation. Let's seek protecting the victim and helping them to seek out legal recourse as the priority. And anything that does otherwise seems to be um, unhealthy on some level and essentially just furthering the abuse. Correct. I agree with that. Any any other thoughts from you? I mean, is there other things that we need to kind of cover or, or did we kind of cover everything or is there some other issue that, that we need to kind of walk down the path of? Um, I don't know. What else did you, when you were reading my statement or my letter to the the first presidency was there anything that uh that stood out to you in there the, the main thing that stuck out to me and i'll just i'll say it generally because i i can sense from the way we kind of started off the conversation and i don't think it's appropriate there's really not a need to talk about the abuse like instance after instance after instance but as i read your story kendra and as you've talked about it um as you've as I've watched you on social media try to be a voice for your own trauma as well as for the trauma of others and the abuse of others, what I noticed when I went through the documents was that the the abuse is substantial and it is significant. And so while you and I, because this conversation is going to be public, while you and I have not made that kind of the centerpiece of this conversation, I would want the audience to know like the abuse was significant. and And I think... We have to stop diminishing on any level the things that happen to kids, the abuse that happens to kids, the trauma that happens to kids. I have one brother. We're four years apart, and I've said this before. I didn't know this stuff was happening in the world because our childhood was relatively innocent, 
and we were so distanced from these kinds of unhealthy things happening uh, in, in the world at large that when I got married to my wife and learned of her abuse, when I became more aware of people's stories by doing the podcast, and as I began to associate with friends who were vulnerable, what I, what I came to realize is that sexual abuse is deeply prevalent and widespread in our society. And every time out of embarrassment, out of wanting to, uh, whatever the mechanisms are that we quiet the story and we diminish the victim and we protect the abuser, we make spaces for these abuses to happen all over again and for existing victims to have to live through their abuse over and over again. And, and so as I, as I stand back with a 20,000 foot view, looking at your story and a thousand other stories, I, I would want the listener to understand like it's significant, it's widespread. And while I hear all the time, like, oh, we want to be careful, like maybe the story isn't true. My, my research into sexual abuse, my understanding of listening to other victims and understanding their stories, very rarely are there false allegations. We would do best as a society to side, to side with the victim and to work from there, um, from that angle, first and foremost, all the time. Because by not doing that, the amount of deeper trauma and deeper abuse we cause is, um, again, I'm using the same word, significant and widespread. We, we just have to get better as a society and we have to get better at holding systems accountable when those systems want anything other than to be responsible for for the way their system is set up and the abuses they allow to happen. I absolutely agree with that. The the latest statistics that I um, pulled from the Department of Justice in my in my uh, letter in 2018 was that one in five girls and one in seven boys would be the will be the victim of sexual abuse before the age of 18, and that three out of four adolescents who have been sexually assaulted were, the, were victimized by someone they knew well. This isn't a stranger problem. This isn't someone that comes up in a dark alley. This is someone that they know, a family member, someone that's a friend, a family friend. It's it's prevalent, and it's more prevalent in Utah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I know that I had read statistics before that one in three, one in four, one in five that you're talking about. But I also read a statistic yesterday that 91% of, for instance, rapes, I think was this specific instance was what it was talking about, but 91% of rapes are unreported. And so while we have this certain number of like, oh, one in three, one in four, one in five, I, I, I have to assume that's on rep, on a level of those that are reported. And yeah. And so when it comes to these abuses happening, there's a much larger percentage that go unreported uh, versus those that are reported. Uh, we, we just got to get better at this. And, and, and I think we're moving that way, but you can also see where systems want to, you know, have a death grip on protecting themselves and they they move into these healthier spaces kicking and screaming um we just have to do a better job i i want, I want to say appreciate you coming on i think it takes a level of vulnerability to tell your story when you know it's going to be listened to by the general public but but i think it's important and you've made mention of this and i, I know you mean it it's important to get these kinds of stories out so that people want when people go like oh it, it's not just me it's these it's other people too there's a sense of courage to be able to stand up and tell their story too. And by bringing an awareness to this issue, listeners can start to look at their own lives and go like, you know, my 
My uncle acts a little strange around my kids and all of a sudden my kids' behavior has changed. It's like you said, it's not a stranger. It's grandpa. It's it's the uncle. It's the stepdad. It's the brother. It's the, it's the cousin. Um, we have to stop assuming that everybody that we love and trust isn't going to do anything unhealthy to us. The statistics say something very different and we need to be on the lookout. And uh, if your kid is uncomfortable giving somebody a hug, don't make them. Don't force them to do that. Don't force them to hug somebody. Don't force them to be around somebody. You know, listen to them. Anything else? Uh, any other thoughts from you? And, and otherwise, we'll wrap up. Um, I think the other part of my uh, my reason for sharing my story also is that, you know, being a victim or a survivor of sexual assault doesn't mean that um, you have to always be a victim. You can still succeed. You can still get through it. You can... Um, do great things. You can use uh, what you have uh, overcome, what you've gotten through to um, help other people. It's it's on one level, it's a, um, a horrible experience to have had to endure. But on another level, it gives me the ability to connect with people that many people can't connect with. And um, that has been probably the biggest uh, benefit out of everything that I've been through because the people that I'm able to connect with are people that genuinely know that I care about them. I can actually help the people who feel like things are hopeless and it's not, it's not hopeless. Um, you can get through it. You can go to school, you can accomplish great things regardless of what you've been through. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. It, it is a two-sided coin, right? Some things are, things are going to be triggering the rest of your life. Certain things are going to be debilitating, like you pointed out in terms of an anxiety attack when these things come up. There are certain parts of this that are likely going to affect the victim's lives for the rest of their lives. And at the same time, you're saying like, but it also can can help you to be more sensitive and compassionate towards others. It can help you to perceive signs that something is wrong or going on. Um, I, I think it's added and again, I don't, I don't want to be seen, I, I, I'm always trying to be careful of this. I don't want to be seen as saying like, oh, look, it was for your benefit. But by no means do I wish any kind of abuse on anybody. But at the same time, I think that when I look at my wife, when I look at others around me that I know have been abused, they have become more compassionate and sensitive in certain situations than than what I've got. And I think it, it goes back to that that abuse happening. And so as you point out, you don't have to be a victim in all things. You can... You can, to the best of your ability, and realizing to some extent that's going to be affected for the rest of your life, you you do have some ability to go back into the world and to try to make it a better place using what you've learned from that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Kendra, I appreciate the time. Uh, hope, you're, hope you're doing good. Hope your family's great. And just appreciate you sharing your story this morning. Thanks for having me on. Say what?